This is Hans Reamer, Montgomery County Council Member, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew is joining us today. How are you both? All good. Doing good. Great. Today on the podcast, we are going to give you an update on the Oklahoma opioid litigation, major events there. We'll talk about the Bay Bridge buzz. Obviously, that's a big story in the news right now. And then Kerwin catch up because we always have to have talk to. a little bit about Kerwin. But there were some significant updates last week. Yep. So let's jump right in. Natasha and Michael, Oklahoma opioid case. So Oklahoma was the first case that was heard against drug manufacturers for the national public health disaster. And that is the opioid crisis. And the ruling may point to what lies ahead in, you know, about 2000 state and local governments across the country who have also filed lawsuits against these manufacturers, including many here in Maryland. So, Natasha, you're the expert here. We know that a judge this week ruled that Johnson & Johnson intentionally mischaracterized the dangers, oversold the benefits, and he ordered them to pay a massive sum. Break down what happened for us this week in Oklahoma. Sure. Um, So the Oklahoma case had gone on for a number of months, and it didn't start with just Johnson & Johnson. A number of uh, manufacturers and pharmaceutical um, providers were part of that suit. Some of the big names there, Purdue Pharma and Teva, pharmaceuticals had both earlier on settled with Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So Purdue settled for $270 million and Teva for $85 million. So they decided not worth going to trial. We're just going to settle right up front. Right. So, so, But part of this news is if you're not a public health wonk like Natasha, you might have never heard of Purdue Pharma. Mm -hmm. You've almost certainly Mm -hmm. never heard of Teva Pharma, but you've heard of Johnson & Johnson. These are big dogs, Big dogs, big dogs. Johnson & Johnson, um, you know, big name, yeah. lots of products and services they provide. Um, opioids um, is actually just a small sliver of that. And that's mm-hmm. actually through some of their um, subsidiary companies. Yeah. Right. So we see the baby powder. We know about like, you know, all the stuff that's in your bathroom that says Johnson & Johnson. It's not just opioids. They make everything. Right. 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 Exactly. Which is also what makes this case very interesting because they have, um, in some respects, a smaller role than, say, Purdue Pharma and those, that's the maker of Oxycontin, Oxy, right, yeah. which everyone knows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But really, because they did have a role in uh, producing the materials that go into making these drugs and then having their subsidiaries sell them, they, the argument in Oklahoma was that they still had a role there um, uh, in creating this public nuisance Mm -hmm. of a crisis in Oklahoma. And we'll get into that because I think that's important. But generally here, the idea is, correct me if I'm wrong, but because these opioids were saturated across the market and in all the states, that led to the opioid crisis. So states, counties have had to pay a lot of money to try to mitigate these consequences. And that is exactly what the states and counties are saying in the cities that you need to pay for all of the money that we've had to spend to undo this mess that you created. Yeah, and it's more than just that they they manufactured materials. Mm-hmm. Um, really, the basis is they did so knowing that as they were promoting 
uh, the use of it to the doctors and distributors, um, that they were downplaying some of the negative side effects, so how addictive it was, um, how effective they were at treating it, that really um, contributed to the broad distribution of the drugs and then use that spiraled into the crisis we have now. And that's something we, we've been hearing throughout this as the, the paper trail just develops on these cases. We've been hearing from the doctors and their representatives basically saying, well, everything I understood about these medications were that they were safe. They weren't habit forming. Mm -hmm. I went to these conferences and events right. and there were all these presentations by learned people who had done studies and stuff. And I came away with the impression this was fine. It was the right thing to do. You know, this girl comes in and she threw her shoulder out at the volleyball game. So, yeah, give her 30 days worth of Vicodin or Oxycontin or something that'll handle that pain and, you know, get her get her through that. Um, I didn't realize that this was something that would have this big of a downside for as many people as it has. Right. And when you trace it backwards, well, who was running that event and who put together that panel presentation and who commissioned that study? These all point back to these manufacturers as the, the centerpieces of a lot of this debate. Right. Follow the money. And, and so, yeah, some doctors are saying, look, this was sold to me as a miracle drug, right? It can heal the pain. It's not addictive. So, yeah, I was prescribing it to a lot of different patients and I didn't realize that what I was doing was creating this this massive opioid epidemic that we're dealing with now. They ask for about $17 billion, right? And from what I understand, that's how much it would cost, according to them, to mitigate the damage that was done over the next 20 years. They didn't get $17 billion. What, what did the judge say in that regard? So they got $572 million. Okay. And um, what the, drug, the judge said in that regard is that um, they weren't able to prove 20 years okay. worth of um, need for remediation. What they were able to prove was one year. And so the $572 million was one year of trying to um, fix the crisis. But they're, but they're basically saying, we think these companies really are on the hook for, you know, we're, we're, we've supported an entire extra wing of our criminal justice system by having drug courts and a whole process for alternative sentencing and all these different, you know, we need treatment beds and all these different programs. And this is this is an outcome of this market that's created through these manufacturers' actions. So you pay to clean up your mess. Right. You left us holding the bag and we had to deal with it at the state and local level because that's what we do, right? We have to take care of our residents. And so, Natasha, you mentioned this earlier, but I think there's a critical part here, and that is public nuisance. And the judge here said that, that, that Johnson & Johnson did indeed perpetuate a public nuisance, and that substantially contributed to the ongoing public health crisis. And we've seen public nuisance laws. They're different in every state, but usually they're applied in cases where something interferes with a right to, you know, to the general public. So roads, waterways, other public areas. That's typically what we're talking about. And we've seen plaintiffs over the years claims involving, you know, lead paint, guns, water, air pollution with mixed results. So why is this significant here that the judge specifically mentioned public nuisance and bought that argument from Oklahoma? It's significant. And Oklahoma has a very broad public nuisance law. But I think um, rather than the focus being specifically on the use of public nuisance, mm -hmm. it's really the case itself is um, a larger uh, canary in the coal mine. So really, in a number of these 
the federal case and um, 40 other states that are pursuing pursuing cases against these pharmaceutical companies, um, they're not just relying on nuisance. It's also state drug laws Mm -hmm. or consumer protection laws, racketeering, a whole range of issues. But what it goes to show, this case went to trial. This wasn't a settlement. So nuisance was one of the things you can presumably put them on the hook and show that they can be held responsible. Right. And, and conceptually, it's a pretty big deal. Nuisance law is kind of a weird, weird concept, but you know, some, some company dumps a bunch of battery acid in a stream. Mm-hmm. And on a certain level, you say, well, who's the person who's an, the aggrieved party? Who, who's the person who can't, you know, who, who got sick because they drank the water or something like that. But the, the question of public nuisance is saying, Hey, if you ruin that stream, we can't swim. We can't drink. We can't fish. We lose the, the economic activity around right, there. Right. You've committed sort of a violation against the public. You've denied us the right of some public good. And that is a broader, more sweeping argument than just you caused harm to this person and that person, these sort of named parties or this class of parties. The idea is if you're Purdue or if you're Johnson & Johnson, the idea that you may have the collective people of the state of Oklahoma or the other 40 states who are huddled around watching what's happening in the Oklahoma case. Yeah, cases. this is really the test case, right? right they're the sooner state, right? right? They should be ahead of everybody. That's fine. So, but this is, this is the beginning of this whole, we're, we're framing what legal arguments play. And, and as I recall, this isn't the first state where the public nuisance law was tried, right. but it's the first place where it stuck. Right. Yeah. So North Dakota, in a case there, uh, public nuisance was tried and the judge threw out that case mm-hmm. and said you're not proving a public nuisance. So, so, so up till this week, if you are, if you're running a calculator and you're on team Johnson and Johnson thinking, you know, how bad could our exposure be? What are the range of outcomes here? You might've been thinking, well, we already won in North, North Dakota on nuisance claims. So we can just fight on direct costs and specific aggrieved classes. Now the idea that this is potentially broader, this, I think this, this puts a little more weight on the balance of the people have a right to get back some of the costs that the public has incurred for all the health and incarceration and treatment costs that have been borne by these medicines. Right. So in all these other states where maybe these manufacturers thought, okay, North Dakota, we're, we're good. They threw it out. Now we don't have to worry about that. We can focus on these these specific issues. Now this brings public nuisance potentially back into play, although all the states are different. But now they at least have to think about this. And Natasha, this... This trial, this ruling comes two months before we start to see federal cases get underway in Ohio. How does this, do you think, affect the the case that's going to happen in Ohio, all these other cases? What happens now with these manufacturers? What are they thinking? Yeah, so um, that case in Ohio is a consolidated case of over 2,000 cities, counties, um, Native American tribes that um, are, are pursuing claims against these companies. So that's the big one. That's the big one. Um, and as I mentioned before, you still, in addition to those local governments pursuing claims um, as a group, you still have individually over 40 states pursuing claims um, in state courts. Mm-hmm. So so the consolidated case in Ohio, is in a, is, that's a federal judge right. in Cleveland or you know, Cuyahoga County, right? Mm-hmm. So, so 
Judge Polster has has the consolidated federal case, but that's not even the universe. Right, exactly. Because some states, I mean, I know our counterparts in Arkansas, they filed exclusively under state law for, for a variety of reasons. So this this is a mess. It's, it's hard to keep a handle on. Exactly. There's many, many cases. So if you are Purdue, Johnson & Johnson, um, et cetera, what you're looking at now is one case that went to trial and a uh, big company found guilty, and then you have tons of other cases left. So now what you're going to anticipate seeing is more of them thinking very strongly on the lines of settlement. And we already saw that a bit in Oklahoma with Purdue and Teva settling before going to litigation. And so um, with a result like this in Oklahoma and the potential for these other large-scale litigation uh, there's certainly a push there, and Purdue has also noted that they're considering a global settlement. So instead of going individually in all these cases, just settling it broadly. Right. We right. want to do one and done. We want to be done right. with it. And and so, okay, everybody looks at, you know, if you're a math guy like me, I mean, I'm looking at Oklahoma, a state that is smaller than Maryland, mm-hmm. and there's lots of Oklahomas out there. And if the combination of you know, these three companies, two settlements and one judgment are over $900 million in a relatively small state like Oklahoma, which I don't think there's an argument that Oklahoma is the hardest hit state in the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know whether that would be West Virginia or Ohio, but you know, nonetheless, it's it's not like they're an outlier here. Right, right. So as we think about this in terms similar to the tobacco settlement from some years ago, this is starting to take on similar dimensions. It's a public health crisis that's affects state and local governments. That's why you got 41 jurisdictions at the table. Is Guam in this thing? We've got to Ooh, check Guam, into that. Uh, we may need to, we need to. I bet they're, to, they're thinking about jumping in now. We may need to get down there. Yeah, so anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, so, we'll do a special pod live from Guam. I like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like that. So um, but that, that's, that's why everybody sees this as a potential parallel and the arithmetic starts to have a lot of zeros on it. If Oklahoma's got close to a billion dollars out there for what they've been able to demonstrate locally, then the the, the price tag is going to get big on this. Yeah, it seems like $4 billion. I mean, that's what you know yeah. Purdue has been thrown around, but that doesn't seem like it's going to cover. I mean, if Oklahoma's almost a billion and you have every other state or most states considering litigation in all these local governments, that number seems low. But uh, so, so you think that there's going to be more of an incentive now that they've seen what happened in Oklahoma to go ahead and try to get this settled and, and get it done? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly talks of you know, what to do towards these settlements. And in Ohio, the judge there has been kind of pushing towards, let's figure out a settlement here rather than going to trial. And, you know, there's so many layers to this because, again, there you have 2,000 jurisdictions. So they have to figure out the federal court case goes through there. Let's say there's a settlement there. How do you figure out distribution among mm. all those localities? And then again, we have the individual states that are pursuing cases, and they're also looking for money. So on one level, yeah. you have the states, and then you have your local governments each pursuing cases, and everyone looking for a pot of money where, yeah, if you're right, for um, Purdue to throw out $4 billion, um, there's a lot of mouths to feed with that money. Yeah, a lot of mouths. <laughs> I mean, how do you slice this up? I mean, that's going to be potentially the next big question, right? right. If there's this massive settlement, 
there's going to be everybody's going to be trying to get their piece of this, right. And, right. and everybody has with a legitimate has, argument. Right. And it's like my jail has been full of people with this problem. Absolutely, and yeah, you know, they wouldn't have been here. I wouldn't have been paying all this overtime. We wouldn't have had all this medication requirements and so forth. I mean, yeah, you know, you know, we would have damage done by people, and so, you can see the mm-hmm. list going on and on. Um, so, I mean, that's part of it. The, I mean, the next few weeks here are surely going to be pretty rocky. Right. Right. And, and this is probably typical for posturing on a giant, high profile, big money lawsuit that the, the stakeholders will do some of this in public opinion. You'll see an article in the New York Times that says this and that. And, you know, we'll see that kind of public back and forth. There'll also be some degree of dirty laundry, I would imagine, mm. with state governments saying, just, just settle with the states and we'll take care of the locals. Right. And then the people who are in local government will say, no, fool me once, right? You know, we were told that all these different things were going to happen. We were going to get cancer screening and public health funding and so forth out of tobacco. tobacco. And then, you know, you look state by state by state and the money yeah, it happened for a while or it went on for a bit or it was just a piece of the pie or you get a dime on the dollar. So I, I think, I think there will be a lot of local governments who feel strongly about that. And then with the variety of different cases, you have to imagine, I mean, if I'm, if I'm Purdue, I want to write one mammoth right. check right. and get out. Be done. Right. As opposed to now I got to go work on these other, you know, 29 different states that, you know, I want to go down to Little Rock and haggle with everybody in Arkansas. And then next you go to South Carolina. No, no, I don't want that. I want to do one and get out. And how do you do that at different, you know, different tiers in the justice system? Can you actually do a super consolidation and mm. make everything federal, federalize the entire thing. I'm sure that's what that's what the defendants would want here. Yes. Finality. Right. <laughs> right. So a lot of balls in the air, a lot of things to consider. But over the next few weeks, few months, there should be a lot of breaking news here. I think we'll get a pretty good idea of how this is going to move forward then. So lots to keep an eye on and, and we'll certainly keep you updated. We're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we will talk about Bay Bridge Buzz, and we'll give you a recap of the latest meeting of the Kerwin Commission's funding work group, all that and more after the break. The Local Government Insurance Trust is the primary source for Maryland local governments to get insurance coverage. When the private insurance market doesn't understand your needs and doesn't really want to be in the business of covering your law enforcement officers and other public employees, legit will be there. That is exactly why Legit was created over 30 years ago. Legit is different. Legit is owned and managed by its local government members. That means that when we do well, you do well. Members get premium credits when the trust has a good year. And Legit offers training and best practices year-round to make sure our members are doing their best with risk management. Competitive prices, outstanding service, and coverage that fits your needs as a local government. You can't beat LEGIT for all your coverage needs. Find out more at lgit.org or drop by their exhibit space at the MML or MAKO conference. 
Welcome back to the Condor Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. Michael and Natasha, another huge story this week. The state of Maryland announced three possible sites for a new Bay Bridge crossing. We've talked about this issue before. Everybody knows if you go to Ocean City, if you go to the Eastern Shore, the Bay Bridge, there is a lot of traffic, a lot of backups, and it seems to only get worse. But the three locations here, we'll talk about them. All three of them have something to do with Anne Arundel County, and then they are all going, of course, to the Eastern Shore. But let's talk about where these are and, and what we think about the options. Right. I mean, this is this is narrowing down from, uh, we, we saw a map back in, I don't know, January, February, which was, yeah, yeah, the sort of like yeah, the sneaky leaked map. And it was, here's here's a map, and it, it sort of looked like someone on an Etch-A-Sketch had just taken a magic marker and made like, 18 different lines like every <laughs> 10 miles of the Chesapeake yeah, Bay multi-pack, there was another highlighter pack all different yeah, colors right, it was yeah. pretty wild so for a while you know on paper it's like Maryland is considering a, a multitude of different locations so we knew there was going to be a step in the in the the federal process to advance a project you have to consider a wide variety of sites and you have to have apparently a tier of contender sites and that's what got announced this week but even this tier is is kind of phony. So let's talk through the three, then we'll cut to the chase. Right. So there, there's three <laughs> options, and then, of course, there is a no-build option, so do nothing. But the first option is to add a third span at the current Bay Bridge, and that's, of course, from Sandy Point on the Broadneck Peninsula in Anne Arundel County across to Kent Island in Queen Anne's County. The second option, potentially on the table, Pasadena, Anne Arundel uh, County, Anne Arundel. To, to Rock Hall, <laughs> right? And then the Mayo Peninsula, Anne Arundel, to Easton in Talbot County. So... Michael and Natasha, there are three sites as well as don't do anything, but everybody knows there's really only one option. I I think that's basically what everybody has has felt all along is that you're going to go through this process and then all the arrows are going to point in the same direction. You've already cleared the land. You've already built the landings for the two spans that right now are, you know, the sort of... It's, it's Sandy Point near Annapolis, goes across to Ken Island, right. and it's it's the you know the narrowest spot in terms of mile and distance. It, it avoids having to go in and do a whole lot of you know reconditioning of land and build up of of egress and entrance and all these sorts of things. Eminent domain, right? right yeah. yeah. So like the long list of things you don't have to necessarily do a ton of by expanding a current site. It seems to make it obvious. So even when this report came out saying we're down to three contenders, I, I feel like most people in Maryland were like, but but it's just going where we have the two spans now, right? And it, it isn't it that what the governor said? <laughs> right, that, well, that's, right. the, that's what he would right. consider is... Right. right. And the governor does, the governor does, why we have to talk about three because some people like the Army Corps of Engineers requires that we have three contenders. But everybody like the only thing I'm approving is going where we are now. Right. And, and you know... As as he sometimes has a gift for doing, he clears the air and says, this is the thing we're doing. So when we get to making our decision, it's going to be that one, not the other one. Set that stuff aside. Right. So it's important to mention this list was narrowed down by the state after they looked at northern crossings, southern crossings, again, back to that map you mentioned. And they said, look, those sites would not provide significant relief, traffic relief of the existing traffic that crosses the Bay Bridge for weekday commuters or for for that beach traffic in the summer. And they, 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 the state does say this third span at the current location at the Bay Bridge would be the most efficient for reducing that traffic. And again, 
we have discussed this, uh, how much of a nightmare it is. And when this traffic backs up onto local roadways, you have concerns about emergency vehicles trying to get through. But when you're sitting in, you know, a 14 mile backup, it's pretty frustrating. And so obviously they want to do something here, but this is something that it's going to take a long time. We're only in the beginning stages right. here. It's not like we're going to break ground, right? Right. Now, this isn't this isn't something where, you know, Governor Hogan says, I like this location. And then, you know, Wednesday morning, the tarps go up. <laughs> Cut the it's, ribbon. No, <laughs> yeah, this isn't that kind of deal by any stretch. So it's, it's I mean, it's a long term thing. But what this every step in the process is just going to generate some more energy and political sparks, mm -hmm. right? So that's mm -hmm. what's, I mean, so that's what this is going to do. Mm -hmm. And as we have now grown accustomed to seeing uh, conversations about transportation policy always turn into an undercurrent debate about the use of cars and the reliance on cars versus getting out of the car business and promoting more transit mm -hmm. and cycling and pedestrians and, you know, multi-use communities and other things like that that are less dependent on cars. Right. Complete and, street model. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, even getting beyond the streets and so forth. Right. I mean, this, so this is, this is a big picture policy debate. Maryland is by no stretch the only place who is in the middle of having this debate, but we're seeing that show up in housing policy. We're seeing it show up in the design of your downtown roadways and things like complete streets efforts and things like that. And then every time there's a new highway project, the, the, you know, the, uh, the extra lanes on route 270 to go after traffic congestion, you have the same debate. Should right. we instead be focusing on alternatives to automobiles? And so that, I mean, that, that debate isn't going away. This is a little bit of kerosene for a, you know, a fire that has been flickering for a while. So we'll see. It. We've already seen the mm -hmm. beginnings of that and some stakeholders saying this is exactly the wrong thing to do. We Don't need trains or ferries right, or other Right, exactly. Things. Yeah, Dan Rodericks has got this, you know, it wrote a piece some time ago and he's been giving it some extra run about, you know, if we had a series of electric ferries from some of the places that were contender locations for a bridge, right. then, yeah, you could take 120 people at a time here and 120 people of time there and you could accomplish something that way uh, you know that there's an environmental element to mm -hmm. this as well and you shouldn't ignore that the local what, what does it mean you know when if you if you build another span or you replace the two with some gigantic thing or whatever what's that going to mean for uh, wetlands on both sides of the bay of, of the bridge right i mean like i mean how, how far yeah. do these lanes have to go right if you build an right. expand you have to have five lanes all the way down to easton you have sure. to have how far does it go into anne arundel so yeah of course mm -hmm. a lot of people are going to have concerns mm -hmm. and the good news is they will be having some public meetings those will happen over the next few months so everybody can show up and oh they will they're <laughs> coming you know they're coming yeah i kind of that's going to be rough for the folks running those meetings but they'll there will be venues for for people to go and uh, and say they're peace. But again, you know, this is the beginning of a very, very long process. There's still another tier that goes into this. That's all the environmental impact studies and whatnot, federal laws that they have to follow. So right. we don't know the cost yet. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even, yeah. there's a lot to, there's a lot still to happen. We haven't even talked about dollars yet. Right. Yeah. And if, I mean, if, if one thing I think we know about major projects is if today the working number is five billion dollars, mm -hmm. the final number is not going to be five billion. Right. It's going to be it. seven point two or eight point eight or something along those lines. I mean that's just the the nature of these sorts of things it happens that way. But I mean just do the simple math. If if you're going to float bonds of some sort on 
just say it's $5 billion. And if you're floating bonds at 3% a year, just to, just to pay the interest on $5 billion is $150 million right. for an awfully long time. Right. So, so, and then, you know, to pay down the capital is a layer on top of that. This is a big financial issue. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a way of life and quality of life issue for a lot of Marylanders. A lot of people are glad to see the wheels turning. Mm-hmm. So these communities potentially affected are going to care deeply. Um, the debate about whether we're doing it the right, right way or whether this is the right thing at all, that's going to continue. And then how do we fund it and how do we square that with short-term decisions on transportation financing, including tolls, mm-hmm. um, that don't expect that to go away either, right? Yeah. So, and honestly, everybody wants to talk about that. Yes, <laughs> so, that's the hot topic, right? I mean, yeah, but the, I mean, the governor's happy to talk about, remind Marylanders that he's cut the tolls and kept them down. And I think the governor's opponents are eager to say, how are we supposed to do this big project? Because the revenue for it is supposed to be through the tolls. And you just gave everybody a free pass for, you know, for a political generation. Right. (laughs) What are we going to (laughs) do? Okay. Speaking of controversial and costly issues, and are we doing things the right way? How should we do them in the future, Michael? Let's get into Kerwin. Kerwin, Let's get into Kerwin. Everyone's favorite. I know, Natasha, you love Kerwin, right? You love Kerwin. Everybody loves Kerwin. So we're not going to spend a ton of time. I feel like the the teeming millions out there, they all just like lifted their glass because we said the word, we said the K word. It might be, it might be a thing. It's a thing. And I know they all want to know what Natasha thinks about Kerwin. They've been here, they've been listening to us yap about this for a long time. They want to know what Natasha thinks. Actually, like Natasha's trying to get our local health departments funded. So this, sorry, sorry. There's not much, there's not much oxygen for other things because this this is what we're doing now right right so michael and natasha there was a meeting last week of this funding formula work group just to recap this is a work group that they're taking the commission's recommendations their job is to figure out how these formulas are going to be split between the state and the locals and and you know where you should what you should do about local wealth and maintenance of effort how much people should pay they have a lot of work to do, and the idea is they're going to bring back those recommendations to the full Kerwin Commission sometime this fall, and then they will take action and move a plan forward to the General Assembly. So, Michael, first of all, we, we, there was this meeting last week, and it opened up with some fireworks, <laughs> 20, to say the least. 20 good minutes of back and forth, starting with, with Dr. Kerwin himself, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, Britt is a pretty even-tempered gentleman yes. and has been, I mean, I think a very fair arbiter during the meetings and giving everybody their chance to talk. But, Absolutely. But he sort of grabbed the microphone and talked for a while, principally responding to things the governor had said about the plan and its cost. And we talked about during last the, week. Yeah, during the, the MACO conference. Mm-hmm. So yeah, last, last week on the podcast, we sort of felt like, the governor made news, no surprise. Everybody was talking about Kerwin and the governor expressing reservations about funding. Uh, he used the phrase half-baked, and boy, did that get under a few fingernails around town, right. including <laughs> Dr. Kerwin. Yeah, and that <laughs> phrase came up multiple times oh, yeah. <laughs> at this last meeting. And yeah, Dr. Kerwin very even-keeled, but he could not help himself to respond. And you said about 20 minutes, and I think at, at the end he said that was very cathartic. Yes. <laughs> They just needed. They just needed to get right. that off of their chest. Okay, and now back lot, to work. Right, yeah. and a lot of people uh, had a lot to say, so everybody kind of got their turn to mm-hmm. talk about those comments and what it meant moving forward. But Michael and Natasha, there also were some some big news that 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 came out of that meeting, right? And it's stuff that we've talked about extensively here on the right. podcast. So I mean, I, I confess once again we were wrong. 
that we thought this meeting would be the big meeting. We thought that this was going to be the first meeting where they roll out true cost estimates and here's what it's going to mean in year one and year five and year 10. And you're going to be able to turn your piece of paper sideways and look and see, well, I'm from Charles County. Here's what it means to Charles County government and taxpayers. Right. And rightfully so. I mean, Natasha, you've been following this. And how many years now have we been saying, we just need to know what the numbers are, right? We want to know what these costs are. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Every and day it comes up. It does, right? It does. Everyone's not a day about. when it's not. What's the numbers? Right. What are, what the, are the numbers? And, and you know, we're getting into to the stretch now where they're going to have to present something to the commission seemingly. So I yeah. think we are justified to think maybe we last thought, week. Yeah, the, the, the agenda looked promising. Right, they did. The items on the agenda looked like this is going to be it and we're going to have something to actually react to rather than just chat about. It's only a few months until session. <laughs> right. But, Which right. will fly by. Yeah. <laughs> However, um, it was more chat about, but they did chat, and there are some things to be pulled from that conversation. Mm-hmm. So a, a number of staff presentations, I, I think they consolidated the conversation pretty well. And if you've been trying to follow this stuff and you've been having trouble getting it together, then the staff presentation that was called like building the school funding formula is about 10 or 12 pages, but it was basically a series of bullet point questions and it sort of framed these are the things we've got to sort out. And that is available on the Conduit Street blog. You can right. find that presentation there. So, Michael, they went through a lot of these presentations. The biggest takeaway had to do with how we calculate local wealth. Which, uh, so, I mean, we've we've prided ourselves, I guess, on being the in the weeds lot and that we've been, we've talked in a fair amount of detail about how the state comes up with the t- total amount that they say is adequate for each school system. Mm-hmm. They use a calculation of local wealth to basically back out and say, here's what the state should contribute. And it's going to be more for poor places and less for wealthy places, right. according to this formula. Right. And mostly that's made up of property and income wealth. Right. right? So, With a little, a few more things baked in, but that's the, those are the two main drivers. So, so we've, we've talked about that as a big deal. And we know we have some jurisdictions who feel very strongly that that formula doesn't work. Ideally, we've been trying to temper expectations and say, we're there looking at it, but don't expect a revolution. You should expect evolution. Right. Small evolution. And as of this meeting, we now have a new uh, a new place to plant the flag, which is expect nothing. Expect nothing. <laughs> right. So, so after they, you know, we talked about, we had seen some charts where they ran some numbers. And, and like you said, it was going to be a small change. Some folks would make out, you know, decently well, but otherwise. Yeah, like, like, a, like a percent, a percent and a half right. difference in your state funding. Right. The kind of number, to be honest, that would almost certainly be completely washed out by the new phase of funds that are envisioned sure. in the other parts of the plan. Right. In the grand scheme of things, this was not a lot of funding, but, but you know, once, still. Once they decided not to do anything super drastic, they were mm-hmm. talking about, let's, let's rebalance these numbers instead of being 65-35, we'll make them 60-40 or 55-45. So we were already confined to pretty small changes. And then in part by virtue of them seeming like small changes. And I think in part by, well, who are the big winners here? Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're not the sympathetic jurisdictions right. who would be the beneficiaries of making this change. And so in 
It wasn't exactly a vote. Britt Brit Kerwin didn't exactly run around the, the horseshoe and ask people to vote yes or no, but it seemed like a consensus in the room that close the book on this chapter, leave things the way they are, let's move on to other stuff. Right, and that's telling the staff, you can go ahead and start running the numbers with this yeah, wealth yeah, formula because they where, need to get yeah. some sort of idea of how, they, how they're supposed to run these numbers so they can present the big picture to the commission. But yeah, he said, any objections? Nobody had any, it seemed like, and it seems like that issue has been been put to bed. So a little bit off on what we thought, but at the end of the day, it was going to be very small anyway. Another issue, Michael, that came up, and this is from County Executive Barry Glassman, Hartford County Executive Barry Glassman. He sits on this working group. He asked about state and local pensions and how the Kerwin Commission's recommendations would affect both the state and the local contributions for the pension system. Because we know that large components of the new dollars envisioned under the Kerwin plan are going towards employee salaries. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, part of it is we need to provide more services for special education, but we also know that on a more aggressive and advanced career track for teachers and to get teachers to spend a lower proportion of their individual time in the classroom, that means hiring more teachers Mm -hmm. to cover your classes, both of those mean more dollars in teacher salary, mm-hmm. all those teachers are earning pension, and a big chunk of those pension costs are borne by state government. Mm-hmm. Part of it's borne born by local school boards. Um, right now, there's a relatively small number that is that that shows up in these calculations as a local cost. County Executive Glassman said, I don't see anything here for state costs. Are we missing something? And there was a little pause, and then the staff response, I think, boiled down to, we're looking at that again, and it may be subject to change. Right. We're talking to the actuaries. We're trying to run these numbers, and, and right. we'll see. Hopefully, we'll have some more information soon for you. But right now, it's it's very insignificant. So so right now, they don't have it. I mean, the, the number they're showing is just an amount that would be felt by the local Locals. school systems, and they don't even have a line item for a cost on the state. But but logically, the idea of bringing on a new employee doesn't necessarily this gets this gets complicated right. the way they've right. split the cost for pensions. Um, the the state is really responsible for paying toward unfunded liabilities. Long hiring and hiring a new person doesn't increase your unfunded liabilities. That's what you've already racked up on employees you've got today. Mm-hmm. But if you take today's employee and you grant that person a, a, a bunch of special raises so that we will now project she's going to retire at $98,000, not $84,000, right. you've now bumped up her anticipated pension costs. You may have bumped up your unfunded liabilities. This may be a new number on top. So this $3.8 billion figure has sort of been, people have said, well, that's the number. We just don't know how to get there and by whom. Let's put an asterisk on the 3.8 because if we come back with a new report that says, oh, lo and behold, you know, there's $400 million of pension costs here too. Okay, well, th- that's fine. Your 3.8 just went to 4.2. I, I don't, I have no idea what the number might be, but we've just been told stay tuned. Stay tuned. Another area where I think, Michael, the, the, an asterisk near the 3.8 number is this idea that I think the staff talked more than they ever have about we won't need to label as many kids as special needs 10 years down the road once Mm -hmm. this is implemented because we're going to implement pre-K, we're going to do all these screenings to make sure the kids are on the right track. And that theoretically in their mind says we'll have about half of the kids 
labeled as special needs, and therefore it's not going to cost as much to educate them by that formula. So they really kind of dug into that, and we heard more than we ever have, I think, from the staff on how they justify that number, but but that's also very significant if it doesn't pan out. All right, so that is that is one of the things that they walk through, I think, more clearly than we've seen before. I agree with you. So so the way you get to $3.8 billion is by taking several components individually, and then you back out some areas where we've kind of double-counted a cost, and we right. can repurpose current money into a new area. And then they're saying – we think the number of kids who are going to need special ed services and therefore would be counted for the special ed formula. We, you know, we, we fund extra dollars to each school system based on the number of kids they've identified as having special needs. Mm-hmm. So that's part of our backbone formula. If there are fewer of those kids, then that costs the state and presumably the locals less money to offer those services. So we're banking on early screening and early services, mm-hmm. getting some of those kids up to up, you know, up to grade level in reading mm-hmm. and out of the programs where they have the more hands-on assistance and extra time and things and like where that. Where it costs more to educate them. Right. So that's I mean, that's an optimistic thing. And that sounds like a really preferred outcome by making a bigger investment. But if it doesn't happen, then our cost estimates are are wrong on the low side. Right. So that would be another potentially significant bump in in the projections. But for now, the staff is saying, we think this is what's going to happen. So we've built that assumption into these numbers. Right. Right. Okay. So anything else significant, Michael? Uh, You know, I guess I don't even want to say that we anticipate maybe the next meeting we'll see those sideways sheets of paper because it it hasn't happened. I mean, time and time again, we think we're going to get there. We think we're going to have numbers to talk about and we're not there, but we're running out of time. So, so what's the path forward here? What what did they say in terms of how they're going to move forward now? Their published schedule suggests three more meetings. And is there a public hearing in there as well? Well, there was an early version of the schedule that included a public hearing. Okay. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cancel your plans for that evening to be there <laughs> for the public hearing. I think the winds are pointing in the direction they may not be ready for Just public input. Too much to do. Well, I think in part for lack of having something clear enough for citizens and stakeholders to respond mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. And that's three more meetings of the funding work group. Right. Yeah, right. right. Okay. So, the, so the funding work group. Um, meets on September 5th, 19th, and 26th. And we think that that meeting on the 26th may be the assembly and final votes on their recommendations. They basically are done at the end of September, and then the full commission kicks back off in the beginning of October. They receive the work of this work group, and then the full commission will probably have some public input later down right, the road. Right. So they'll just they'll delay that public input until there's something on the table, essentially. Okay. And then, of course, once the full commission gets it, they're going to have to assume. I assume they'll make some tweaks, but it would be hard to see them relitigating all the work that this group has just done, simply because they don't have the time to do it if they want to get something that can be turned into a bill by the next session. All right. So um, it, it's been tough to forecast the timetable for this group. Mm-hmm. Remember, they were supposed to be done two years ago, and well. they've they've you know they've requested and received a couple extensions on time. So this has been reframed a couple of times. It, it's conceivable pieces of that happen again, but everybody is still set you know dead red on the 2020 session is the big reckoning for this whole idea. That's when we'll see legislation, and really until it's in a bill. 
we really don't know the details. We're going to have the funding work group recommendations, and that'll be a piece of paper. And then we'll have a report from the full commission, and that'll be multiple pieces of paper. But then we'll see a piece of legislation, and it may or may not match up letter for letter, item for item with those recommendations. But that's really the policy debate. Right. You pass the bill. You don't pass the report. Right. So lots to come. And obviously, we are your go-to source for everything Kerwin, and we are following this for you. We'll keep you updated on exactly what's happening. As Michael said, three more meetings of this funding work group, and then the full commission will meet, and we'll keep you updated all along the way. Natasha, I know you're anxious to come back on and talk Kerwin. This is one of your <laughs> one of your go-to, your favorite subject area. So we'll make sure that you're back in to talk Kerwin, and you'll have to give everybody your opinion on what's going on. Does that sound fair? Sound I'm always happy to be on. I know, I know. Well, we're happy to have you. That'll do it for this week's episode. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, go ahead and subscribe, like, share with your friends, family. It really helps to get our message out, and you'll get all the episodes sent directly to your device when we release them. For Michael and Natasha, this is Kevin signing off, and we will talk to you soon.